0: Before we kick this show off, let's hear a word from our sponsors. So it's been a full season for the Under Pressure Outdoors crew in the Hasmore Outdoor Products Silent Seat. And let me tell you, they're worth every penny. And here are some reasons why. Number one, you can't beat the comfort level. Number two, they don't hold in moisture like rain or sweat. Number three, they completely fold out of the way when you stand up, giving you a full range of motion in your climber. And number four, they cut down on your setup and breakdown times dramatically. Don't just take our award for it. Use offer code UPO15 and get 15% off your silent seat and many other US made accessories for your climber today. You can find Hasmore Outdoor Products on Facebook and Hasmore.net. That's H A Z M O R E.net and in the link in this podcast description. I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Pressure Outdoors Podcast.
1: I've seen some of your family was successful this year, weren't
2: they? Let's see. This season... Um no, we didn't. We nobody killed a buck this year. We got some does, but um, yeah, it's been two two years ago since we, we had much luck.
3: Mm. Where are you at in Georgia?
2: We are in Wayne County, which is just north of White Cross in the Okefenokee Swamp. Okay. So, oh, okay. So that's like um, South Georgia, Southeast Georgia. Yeah, my mom very, very much like where y'all are. In the <laughs> yeah. Fall. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the good the good
4: terrain
1: William uh, was uh where was that that William was and he was stayed William st- was stationed at Fort Stewart for a while so he was over that yep. way
4: yeah my my folks got 40 acres in the mountains in Dalanaga on a trout stream so I do a little fly fishing but my brother shot a, his, his first deer he shot a doe next shot it he's like I got so excited I'm not sure I saw my sights I was like <laughs> well I could tell <laughs> But she died on the spot, so good for her. <laughs> so that was his first year last year, so maybe this year I'll get up there and hang a stand and do some work. Nice. So
1: <laughs> I want to kind of that everybody that's here. We got me, I'm your host, Jordan Krebs tonight, because William's out. We got my dad, Bill Krebs, and we have Vince Phelps. Howdy, howdy. And then we have Lindsay Thomas with the National Deer Association.
2: Yeah, so I am the chief communications officer for the National Deer Association. And uh, what that means is uh, me and my team handle all outgoing communications, our website, our magazine, our email communications, social media. Uh, pretty much all of that, video as well, is handled out of my shop. Uh, and I've been with the organization 20 years now. So uh, been quite a while working in deer communications for this organization.
4: So, so you're the forward-facing front of the organization. You're, well, you know what the public gets to see and interact with.
2: Some of it. There are, uh, there's a number of us that are kind of forward-facing. Um, we've got folks on the conservation team like Kip Adams, Matt Ross, that are you know, out there as well speaking a good bit. They probably, in fact, they are more public-facing than I am. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a number of us on the team that are out there in the public, you know, kind of, um, the face of the organization. So, and that's fine with me because, uh, I'm kind of like working behind the scenes anyway. So,
1: <laughs> so, so what brought you to the National Deer Association?
2: So I was working for Georgia Outdoor News, which is, uh, the big hunting and fishing publication here in Georgia. I was one of the editors there for nine years and, um. At the time, uh, you know, this organization was known as QDMA, the Quality Deer Management Association. And uh, they were looking for a publications director was the title at the time. And so, um, you know, I love working at G.O.N. It's it's um, I'm an outdoorsman of all kinds, turkey hunter, bass fisherman, you name it. I like to do it. Mm. But deer is really my passion. Habitat management, deer management is really, you know, if I had to, to pick one, that's what it would be. So to get to come to work for uh, the Quality Deer Management Association was um, a great move for me. And, uh, yeah, I've been, been very happy here. It's kind of like the mothership, you know, calling me home. And uh, now known as the National Deer Association. And much of my job and mission is still the same. It's uh, educating deer hunters about deer and deer management and how to have better hunting where you hunt, how to ensure the future of deer. So, um, yeah, I, I'm lucky to get to do what I do.
3: After hunting in Georgia for 30 plus years, anybody that I ever come around that would get on a lease with us or whatever, it was like, look, you got to get gone. You got to join gone. You got to join gone. If you're going to hunt in Southwest Georgia or Georgia, you need to be a member of gone. I said, because you're getting information about what is here, where you're hunting. You can read field and stream. You can read this, but you're getting information on where you are hunting and what's here around you. Um, great, great organization. Um, can't can't say enough about it. Not good about it.
2: Yeah, it's um, it's a unique model. You know that they, they do journalism, and that that was actually my background. I have a degree in journalism from the University of Georgia, and that's really kind of where G O N stands out. Is is their you know they hire journalists who go and do the the reporting and the digging and find the stories and interview the people and um, so. Uh, that's where I learned from the guys there and, and got my start. So I've kind of kept the spirit of that in, in all of the work that I do as well.
3: So I've, yeah, I started good. reading some about the national deer association and some of your articles and, and, uh, I'm just got me eager wanting to dig into more.
2: Great.
1: So, I mean, you've spoke that you said it used to be the QDMA and now it's the NDA, but I mean, like. What exactly is it and how and when was it founded?
2: So QDMA was founded in 1988 uh, in South Carolina by Joe Hamilton, who was a wildlife biologist. Joe and some other folks uh, in biology, deer biology and management realized that the old, uh, the old regime of thought among deer hunters out there at the time of take the first buck that comes along and don't ever shoot a doe, was no longer useful it was no longer uh, practical we were seeing deer populations explode in many areas there were too many deer and nobody was shooting does and even though there were too many deer very few bucks made it beyond a year and a half of age so Joe and some others got together and decided to put together an organization designed to connect deer hunters with the science and the biology of the animal and show them in areas where they wanted to do it how to have better deer hunting by taking some does when you need to and what showing them what happens when you let some bucks get some age on them and get more deer in the two and three and four year old and up age classes. When you let a deer herd become natural, like it should be, which is roughly balanced between bucks and does and roughly just evenly distributed as, you know, throughout age classes, you start to see things then that you don't see in an unbalanced deer herd. You know, the things that we all enjoy to see. Uh, the fighting and the chasing and the grunting, but also bigger bodied deer and bigger antlered deer and more fawns. So that was where Joe was coming from when he found the organization. For many years, the mission of the organization was that, teaching hunters about that. At the time, QDM was, you know, the philosophy was a foreign idea to many hunters. It was um, not welcomed by many state wildlife agencies. They didn't want to hear about it. It was the opposite of the the regime that many of them were using to manage state deer herds. And now, of course, you know, it's night and day to what I just described. Today, most deer hunters practice some form of QDM, um, and most state agencies are open to those ideas. Most, you know, it's, it's, it's really, you know, we've come full circle. Now, today, um, according to our deer report that we put out annually, you know, we're looking at a situation where in the past, you're talking about 60, 70 percent of the national buck harvest was yearlings. Now, you know, we're looking at down in in the mid-20s for yearlings, and we're talking about 40% or more in the buck harvest nationally that three and a half or older. So it's been flipped completely uh, from a harvest standpoint, and much of that is done through volunteerism. Much of that is not antler point regulations or mandatory rules. Much of that is hunters choosing uh, on their own not to shoot yearling bucks. So we've kind of, you know, the Organization over 20 30 years, uh, sort of uh, made a big difference in deer hunting across North
4: America. So, so it was, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say it sounds like it was born out of a uh, necessary course correction to intervene on, uh, you know, undue pressures that we were putting on the deer population as hunters that got it so lopsided that we really had to get back involved um because we felt like we were staying out of it and just doing our thing and hunting and really what we we're doing is lopsiding the entire population maybe this was born out of needing to course correct on that so that we can bring a more natural balance back because we were putting these un you know unbeknownst pressures onto the population of you know the old school like if it's brown it's down if it walks in front of me it's it's hitting you know, its buckets hitting the ground in day one
2: you know, and there was a time when that was, that was practical. That was uh, the right way to approach it during the restoration area. When you're trying to restore deer and and to go hunting and, and not see a deer was very common. You know, if the, the first legal deer that comes along, you better shoot it because you may not see another one that season. Yeah. Uh, and certainly at the time you didn't want to shoot those because we were in a restoration mode. It's just that, that mantra sunk in so well mm-hmm. that, it's outlasted its usefulness and there came a time when there were too many deer we were seeing browse lines in the woods everywhere um deer were becoming a problem and yet most of them out there were does and then very few of them were bucks and what bucks were there were yearlings so it was time for hunters to yeah stop being just consumers and become managers of deer
3: do right? you think any of it was insurance driven no um no. You you i'd hear always heard lot. yeah i'd always heard that it's insurance companies driving this, because I can remember when, Georgia, you had five tags, two bucks and three dose. and then it went to ten tags. And everybody said, oh, that's the insurance companies driving that, because cars getting running into deer, they're having more deer strikes. It's insurance driven. Is there truth yeah, to
2: it? That, no, there's nothing to that. You you hear that all the time. That's just one of those conspiracy theories people throw out there, because it seems to make sense. Mm-hmm. But no, insurance companies track that information. But I mean, you think about the way an insurance company works. You know, you're paying your your policy fee to cover the cost of things, damage they had to pay for if you hit a deer. I mean, they're they're not going they're not going out of business because of deer. They track that information. But all I can tell you is, if insurance companies are have got some secret scheme going. To get rid of deer in North America, they have done a piss poor job of it because
1: yeah. we've
2: got more deer now than we've ever had. You know, hunting is is doing about as good as it, it has in years. You know, uh, they're you know if they're trying to get rid of deer, they they fail miserably. So,
4: well, if we're going to bring up insurance, I want to redact my previous statement that I've never killed a deer. I've killed <laughs> two with a <the> vehicle. <laughs> hey, whitetail hunter! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man.
1: So, I mean, we talk about QDMA, say I have, you know, like a 40 acre track down the road here. Is it possible for me to manage that small piece of property using QDMA or?
2: So, yeah, we get this question a lot. And, um, you know, I wrote an article one time called, you know, can I do QDM on six acres? Because that was literally a question I got. You know, 40, there's no like hard line that says this acreage you can do QDM and this you can't. But on six or 20 or 40, of course, an important factor is going to be what's going on around you, what's happening on the properties that border you. If you own 5,000 acres, you know, it's less important what's happening around you because, yeah, you're encompassing a lot of deer's home ranges, both bucks and does. And, you know, your management has um, more impact on the population there. But on 40 acres, let's say you really need to shoot some does. Because uh, you've got you know higher density than you really can support with the local habitat, but nobody around you is shooting does, you're not going to be able to shoot enough does on 40 acres to to manage density across the broader area by yourself. Pressure, of course, is going to uh, cut you off there. The deer are going to quit using that 40 acres after you shoot a few does. Um, or let's say you want to try to increase numbers of adult bucks in the area by protecting yearling bucks. Again, if nobody around you is participating with you on that, uh, on just 40 acres, you're, go- you're, you're not going to have success building numbers of adult bucks if, if yearlings are all being shot on the surrounding properties. But what you can do, certainly with 40 acres, is you know have one of the most attractive pieces of dirt in the area for deer, for, for a hunting standpoint, have great hunting there, have cover, have food, manage your pressure wisely like you have to do for a small property to ensure that, you know, your hunting is enjoyable. But then from a, yeah, from a management standpoint, you're going to, have to step across the fence line and get to know your neighbors. You're going to have to build a neighborhood um, cooperative effort around you to get, you know, several people on the same page as far as doe management and bug management goes. The good news is um that's usually pretty easy. Most people around you in almost any state in this nation are going to be interested or are already doing some form of what you'd like to do. If you'd like to do deer management, whether it's taking does or protecting young bucks. So it's generally the, you know, you're kind of going with the tide. You're not swimming against it. um, As far as that goes, getting to know your neighbors.
1: I think some of that, like here in Florida specifically, it's a little bit harder to do for us because you say like if we have a dense doe population, we have what one week out of the whole entire year we can shoot does. Like it's not so. I think more people here in Florida are. Is it a week or a weekend? Private property. It's a week. Okay. Um, I think more people in in Florida, and I'm, I'm actually I feel like I'm starting to see a change of more people even across public land in Florida, trying to chase more mature bucks. But you still have those people because you can't shoot does that are using yearling bucks or just a, a legal buck as a harvest to consume.
2: Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, Florida, the unique case. And, and we see some of this in Southeast Georgia, where I'm from, you know, on these sandy soils and habitats like we have in the deep South, uh, in the coastal plain, like we are and like y'all are, deer productivity is lower. Um, they just don't crank out twins and triplet palms like they do in the Midwest as often. Um, so, you know, you cannot lay down hard on the does in that situation like you would, say, in the Midwest to stay ahead of them. Like at our property in southeast Georgia, in general, if we can just shoot as many does as we shoot bucks over time, you know, if you if you're, you kill a buck, you'll at least get a doe that year. That's generally what we try to do. Sometimes, you know, I killed two does on our farm last year and didn't kill a buck. So we don't get angry at them and shoot every doe we can because, again, it's uh, um, just like y'all are. It's not highly reproductive deer herds that, that you really got to stay ahead of. And it doesn't take a whole lot of doe harvest to level that out and even shrink it. So I think that's why in Florida your doe opportunity is, is not as much as – as maybe you'd like to, you know, to have more, and that's to make sure that um, hunters don't overdo it in terms of doe harvest. So it,
1: that makes a lot of sense too, because you think it is kind of like an age-old question for it. It's like, why doesn't FWC let us shoot does? There's right. not as many does why. out there why. Well, like you said, <laughs> it's just right. not. It's yeah. not as reproductive yeah. of a herd.
3: Where Where yeah. is that line? Is where is that line? Do you think in in the state of Georgia? Where would that line be? Where you're. Where you see that change in in uh, population and density, more does versus less does. Size so, seventy five going north, eastern. No,
2: no, it's more like east of I ninety five, just coastal Georgia, which is very much like most of Florida in terms of true lower coastal plain habitat. You get over into Southwest Georgia, you know, there's some good ag lands, some good soils there. Particularly, you get up into the Flint River Basin in in central South Georgia, uh, the Altamaha River Basin, um, along those areas. Those are highly productive areas, particularly up into the Piedmont of Georgia, um, that do produce bigger deer, more deer, and and more um, more reproductive deer populations. So, I'm mostly talking about like where we are over in the lower, you know, Southeast, Lower Coastal plains, sandy soils, palmettos, uh, gallberry. You know what I'm talking about, right?
3: Right.
4: Are these low re- reproduction numbers just associated with uh, the fact that our soils don't uh, produce or support very good browse? They're just not getting the nutrition that they need to breed at the same rates as the deer further west in, in more fertile soils? Or is that what's going on there?
2: That's what's going on. It's, it's a nutrition thing. And, you know, the um, Craig Harper's done the research at Tennessee a few years back that showed a lot of in, in what you just said. A lot of us always believed is you know, the quality of the forage is not as good. But what Craig showed is it's simply that our soils don't produce the quantity. In other words, if you take a greenbrier leaf grown in Central Florida uh, or Southeast Georgia, it's just as nutritious and has just the same quality for a deer's diet as the same leaf of greenbrier grown in the Midwest. It's just that they can grow more of it. Better soils can grow more quantity of forage. Um, and y'all seen this i mean you know we can like at our farm we we are trying to feed deer through growing natural forage we put sunlight on the ground we're using fire to keep that in an early young stage that's producing uh highly digestible highly nutritious forbs for them to eat um but it just in these sandy soils you just can't produce the, the abundance and the quantity you, you know you've got to Air on the side of producing as much of it as you can, as much, get as much sunlight on the ground as you can. Those soils just don't produce as much. You've also got, you know, this suite of species out there, like palmettas and like others, that just are tough uh, plants adapted to these sandy, salty soils that just aren't good forage. So, you really have, you know, we have our work cut out for us in these areas to produce the quantity of forage it takes to have better deer. You can do it, we've done it. Uh, we have better deer now on our farm in Southeast Georgia than we had in the past. Um, GON, like we were talking about it, you know, they keep a county by county record of bucks that have been officially scored throughout the state of Georgia. Uh, in our County, half of the top 10 bucks in the County have been killed actually more than half. I think it's six or seven of them now have been killed on or next door to our farm. So we've had, been very successful producing some of the best deer we can in our county are they the best deer in georgia no of course not we're never going to be producing deer on a scale that you know the better parts of georgia and other better states are producing but we're producing the best deer we can in our county and that's you know that's what anybody anywhere florida or anywhere else can do through some habitat management through the right herd management is produce the best deer you can where you're standing
4: So it it sounds like setting realistic goals for your deer herd is is kind of important uh, for your overall expectations. But you had mentioned a management tool, and um, I know that uh, the tune has really changed on it uh, as of lately, maybe the last couple decades, but fire. Um, How important is that to managing deer habitat? I know that, you know, in the Smoky Bear era it came out that, you know, only you can control forest fires, and we stopped wildfires in Florida for so long That eventually the Everglades caught fire and it burned the Everglades down to the Lime Rock base. I mean, hundreds of thousands of years of organic soil. It caught a ground fire where the ground was burning. Um, And it really ruined that environment in certain parts of it for a long time. And I think people realized they had to change their outlook on fire, especially in fire dependent ecosystems. And, um, you know, because all the open space that we have in Florida is maintained by periods of flood and fire. It floods. Then it dries out and gets real, uh, and then it burns, and and that's what keeps. We have prairies like uh, Payne's Prairie and, and the marshes around St. Johns are, are maintained that way. Um, how do you use fire to increase your deer herd and the productivity of your properties?
2: Yeah, fire is very important, particularly in this part of the country. It is a natural part of the ecology of this part of the country. This, you know, Southeast and Florida and Georgia, in particularly in particular, burned more regularly than any other part of the country prior to, you know, European colonization and, and even before human colonization here. You look at our weather patterns, you look at how many afternoon thunderstorms we get almost daily this time of year, how much lightning we get, you know, fire was a regular thing. Most, the, the research shows that in our part of the country, most woods burned on a, on a two-year rotation, you know, burned every two years, literally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we ended up with the longleaf pine that that is adapted to that. And that's, we're trying to restore longleaf on our farm for that very reason, so that we can burn more frequently. And, you know, we do, it is, it's a great tool. We highly encourage it. What it does is simply set back succession. You know, anytime you let a piece of dirt sit and don't management and manage it, it gets older, you get shrubs, you get trees, it eventually gets shade on it. And as that, that time passes, it gets lower and lower in quality for deer. The most valuable stage for deer is that early stage with forbs and vines and small plants that they feed on in those early first couple of years of good cover. Fire pushes you back and resets the clock on that and and gets you back to that stage that's highly valuable. You're not burning everything, all your your acreage every year. What we try to do is create a patchwork. So we're burning a little bit every year. And that way you've kind of got this patchwork of different stages of succession going on out there some one year old covers, some two year old covers, some three year old whatever, in a patchwork out there in small units that you can easily burn. You don't have to get a bunch of people to do it. It's something you can manage yourself. And the other thing we're trying to add now is some warm season fire. Growing, you know, some fire now. And the the history on this, the research is showing, again historically, when did most of those fires sweep across Florida and Georgia? right now during the, the season of thunder, thunderstorms and lightning and from a deer standpoint it's good timing because two to three weeks after a fire sweeps through is when you get that peak pulse of high quality uh nutritious high protein forage for deer well right now you got fawns on the ground you got bucks growing antlers this is the time of year that they really need that so a fire right now is really the ideal timing So not only, you know, are we trying to do a diversity out there of stages of growth post-fire, but also trying to throw in some diversity of cool or or rather dormant season and warm season fire to really mix it up even further.
1: So say I lease a piece of property, right, and I I can't necessarily, I don't have the permission to burn it. What am I doing, you know, uh, management wise to get better forage? on that piece property?
2: So it's still mostly the same goal, which is as much as you can get some sunlight on the ground, um, whether now, obviously, if you don't own the land, a lot of times the options for doing that, like timber thinning uh, are going to be up to the landowner. But there are other things such as killing invasive trees that are putting shade on the ground, you know, going in and girdling those and spraying them with herbicide and killing them standing, putting that sunlight back on the ground, or even killing, overabundant native trees, you know, if you've got solid water oaks all the way through, you don't need every single one. Uh, Those are good trees that produce acorns, but you don't need every single one. Kill a few and put some sunlight on the ground. Most of us, of course, will cover up with sweet gum. You certainly don't need all of those. Kill some of those. So, um, but since you can't use fire in those areas where you need to set back succession, you can do things like mow, Mowing is a is an adequate alternative, not as good as fire, but, you know, when you can't burn, that's the next best thing. Spot spraying with some herbicide to kill, like I said, shrubs, small trees, other things that are beginning to colonize and put shade back on the ground and just simply getting some sunlight back on the ground. That's what you're trying to do there. Some of these things that you can do are actual improvements, you know, and if I was you, I'd go to the leaseholder or the landowner and say, listen, here's my goal here is to say um uh, i don't know say you got chinese tallow tree out there or china berry or some other kind of invasive tree
4: ask them, pepper.
2: It, ask them to let you kill it if i was a landowner i'd say man privy knock yourself
4: hedge down.
3: privy so, hedge in southwest georgia
4: yeah i don't i don't think yes. there's a lot of landowners who'd get mad if you offered to pay for a forestry mulcher to come in and knock down some pepper trees yeah, no no put a plan
2: together go to them and say look I want to control invasive plant would you let me
4: mowing.
2: your ultimate goal is to try to grow deer forage but but if you know you can get the landowner and let you do that for free you provide the labor you know you both win Yeah, mowing, you're also mowing
3: per- mowing over or harrow? disking harrowing mowing over that or
2: either disking one disking and harrowing can be good too yes now disking what you got to learn there is it depends on when you do it as to the results, the plant community that you get that responds. You know, we've got old ag land on our farm. And one of the things we've learned is if you disc at certain times of year, you just get coffee weed. There's a lot of, uh, you know, invasive weeds of ag land that are still out there in the in the soil, uh, in, in the seed bank. And you can stimulate them and get something you don't really need. So some winter disking is good. Play with it a little bit and see. Disc some strips uh, through some pine stands or wherever you can, can drop a disc. Um that certainly does also stimulate that new growth, so disking and mowing i'd I'd use both
1: so how much do I know like most of our lives you know are our, our properties that we've leased food plot wise we've just been able to plant kind of like long skinny food plots I mean when it comes to feeding a deer what i mean what's my best option food plot wise
2: so you know, in the, in the southeast where we are, um, the real stress periods for our deer are pretty much late summer. Um, generally, you know, we don't have stress periods in winter like they do in, you know, the north. We don't have to worry about that. It's, it's not terribly stressful on deer because we have such long growing seasons here. So and from a nutritional standpoint, you know, trying to provide something in summer really is, is the ideal thing to do for food plots. Um, whether that's, you know, cow peas and sorghum, that's a mix that I like. Um, you can grow soybeans. Uh, there's a lot of different things that, that you can do uh, from a summer standpoint. Asha or joint batch is another good one where we are. Um, and then, you know, in the, when it comes to fall and your hunting attraction, I just like some of the simple annuals, your cereal grains, which are you know oats, wheat, and rye. Uh, in our sandy soils, we've had good luck with um, red clover—not crimson, but red—which is you know the reseeding annual, um, and and oats as well. Um, so, yeah, um, the other one is arrowleaf clover. That's another one that does real well in sandy soils. huge leaf. So. Uh, those are some of the easy ones. We don't do a whole lot of, of perennial clover because it, it's very difficult to get perennial clover through our long, hot summers. Uh, just can't, except sometimes, like you're talking about, when you've got a long, linear strip, maybe through, maybe like a fire break through some wooded areas or some low-lying areas that stay damp and stay cooler during the summer, sometimes you can pull off some perennial clover in a situation like that in the South. But for the most part, Um, and and truthfully, on our farm, we're growing food plots for fall attraction for hunting, so cereal grains and some brass, because we have some good luck with with turnips and rape and kale. Um, Those do well. We use a a daikon radish, too, does really good in these sandy soil. It puts down a real deep tuber. Deer will eat the tuber in the winter as well. Those tend to be attractive later in fall, so well, what I'm trying to tell you is here, we mostly use our food plot for fall hunting attraction. And we use natural forage, sunlight and fire for food the rest, really 365 days a year. That stuff deer eat every single day of the year. That's primarily our you know nutrition plan is natural forage.
1: Yeah, so a, a big focus, what we need to focus on is improving our property for the sunlight so we have more natural forage.
2: Yep. Not only forage, but cover. Uh, that's good cover. Uh, that helps, you know, can increase your fawn survival. Uh, there's a, a good evidence that shows the more cover you provide um, and the more edge you have, the, the less likelihood that you're going to have a problem with coyote predation on fawns. So producing forage and cover uh, and just doing all the same at once um, is kind of, for me, the biggest focus and I think where most people really should get their start. Um, you know, we kind of the, the food plot industry took off, and hunters got into that in a big way, and that was a big thing. And now we're seeing for years that was the number one question we get about habitat is food plots, and it's changing now. It's evolving. Hunters are kind of looking beyond food plots and go, "What can I do with these woods? How could I produce more forage and cover out here?" And so we're getting more and more questions about the natural forage management. But the truth is, it's easier to get into the natural forage management than it is to the food plots because Um, really you just got to put sun on the ground. You don't have to worry about fertilizer. You don't have to plant anything. The seeds are out there. If you just put sunlight on the ground and maybe a little disturbance like a disc, fire if you can do it. Sunlight and fire is the number one combo if you can burn. The seeds are there. Now you may have to come in and do a little invasive control because the seeds of those invasives are out there too. And you know, we can sit here and name all the ones we've got in the South. Mm -hmm. We've now got Japanese climbing fern uh, on our place um so stuff like that not only the trees and the shrubs but the little vines and plants those are there too and you just got to step in and control those put on your backpack sprayer and go spot spray those every time you kill one you're creating space for the native plants that deer will eat and bed in and hide in so yeah it's it's a it's a process and and that's what i recommend starting with first is the natural
0: The Under Pressure Outdoors podcast is brought to you in part by Hang Free. With a mission to provide top quality products for the best possible price, Hang Free believes that the saddle hunting experience is worth more than money. They create both tried and true products as well as debut new items to the saddle hunting community, creating a community of saddle hunters that don't have to break the bank to participate in the hobby that they love. Do yourself a favor and join the Hang Free family this hunting season. They truly have everything you need. Don't forget to use offer code UPO10 at checkout. For 10% off your order at hangfree.co.
2: Forage management.
1: Yeah, I know a lot where we grew up hunting in southwest Georgia, kudzu was that was a, a bad one that just insanely took over quickly.
2: Deer will eat kudzu. Um, you know, so it's it's unlike say Japanese climbing fern or some of the other things we deal with, It most invasive deer won't touch. And that's a problem because they're out there eating the natives and not eating the invasive, which is an advantage, you know, to the invasives. Now they will eat kudzu, but the problem that I see with kudzu, and we've got a lot of it in North Georgia as well, is kudzu dies, you know, with the first frost and doesn't come back until the following summer, six months out of the year, that area is, has zero for deer. There's no cover out in that area. There's no full food in that area. Uh, it's just, you know, you just can't afford to have, acreage when you're managing deer that does zero for them six months out of the year and truthfully though they'll eat kudzu it's not great forage they'll is, eat privet too but i was gonna is, say
3: is there anything good about privy hedge for deer because i know they'll eat the berries and the and the no. leaves but is there nothing to
1: it
2: they will eat it and they will bet in it but here's the fact you can do better uh the forage quality of privet is very low Um, the bedding quality of it is low because you've seen privet hedge, you've seen it head out in these clumps once it kind of pops out and shades out and there's nothing under there but privet trunks. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. There's nothing but mud and privet trunks. There's no forage, there's no ground cover, no nothing under there and it's even gotten too high for deer to reach it. So from a forage standpoint, it's very poor quality forage, it's not good cover. I'll give you an example. We had about a five acre patch on our farm Uh, We're in a conservation easement with the NRCS, and they were able to help us through an invasive control program, come in and knock that out. They mulched that five-acre patch with a a power mulcher, came in a year later and sprayed it when it was coming back from the stump and killed it. That area now, a couple years later, is one of the best areas of deer cover and forage on our property because everything else has come in there. Not only things that they'll eat, but things they don't, dog fennel and some other things that are good cover. Um, I killed a, a doe in there with my bow in that patch this past fall. It's completely changed the way deer use that that area where that five-acre privet hedge was. So you'll hear some people say, you know, oh, deer will eat privet, and they will. If they don't have anything better, they'll eat it, you know. You know deer, when they don't <laughs> have food, they'll eat things that they, you know, really shouldn't eat. And yeah, it's true with certainly. privet, too, and that's, that's how I sum it up. You can do better than privet.
4: So I think thematically, what I'm hearing is there's more of a return from trying to active management one plus one equals me shooting a big buck to uh, a more you know they're they're saying hey if I plant a food plot I want it to be a kill plot I want to shoot on it and I want to kill something on it to a more of uh, a more holistic standpoint of if I manage the woods properly you know prior to the intervention of human beings when we stop fire and we introduce these invasives and it's if i can reset this back to the way it should be i'll get more quality deer in the long run as opposed to hey if i put two hundred dollars in the ground right here can i shoot a deer on it we're going back more to how do i manage the woods to actually be a quality environment and a lot less you know i want one plus one equals dead buck
2: yeah, and I'm certainly seeing that in, among hunters in general. I believe that they're asking questions about grasslands and fire and native species and and native trees and you know instead of um, you know the quick fix, the quick food plot. Now you know food plots are still a part of this, and I grow them. We recommend them. A lot of people, you know, they're still enthusiastic about those. There's nothing wrong with food plots, but you know you you need to look at. Um, understand their picture in the cost efficiency model as well because nothing's cheaper than fire uh for producing deer forage um so uh you know pound for pound acre per acre in terms of pounds of forage produced you cannot beat sunlight and fire uh food plots work food plots are great particularly like you said as a hunting strategy you know a lot of times um, that's where we get our dough harvest, particularly late season. We try to set aside some food plots that so we don't hunt and don't pressure until late in the season and then try to get a dough harvest there. Um, they're very effective from a from a strategic standpoint. You can also plant food plots that are just pure nutrition. but from a cost efficiency standpoint, uh, you cannot be natural forage management and and Vince you're right that that doing this is kind of our our philosophy is, trying to produce forage and cover on a mass scale we're not like trying to sculpt it so that you know here's the bedding area and here's where we're going to trick the buck to come this way and kill him there you know there's some of that involved but y'all know we're in the south there's cover everywhere Mm -hmm. right Um, you leave it alone there's cover everywhere Mm -hmm. i mean y'all you've heard people in the north talk about funnels and pinch points We don't hardly have that down here i don't know about y'all but it's all three feet in front of you yeah right so you know a deer can be coming from almost any direction you've got cover everywhere what we're trying to do is make sure that it's quality cover and it's quality forage as well so that you're providing that on a mass scale you're providing mass nutrition um and then you know protecting the young bucks building up those numbers you're not going to protect them all some are going to go go off and get shot on other properties but over time, you're not worried about that. You're just cranking out numbers of deer.
4: So this is producing deer through long division, not simple addition and subtraction. Big picture thinking. Correct. We're elevating ourselves as, a, as a conservationists and not just hunters. So The other thing, too, is um, and Mississippi State has done this research. I'll try not
2: to dive too deep into it here. But bottom line, what they found was that kind of nutritional improvement does not overnight turn a deer into fulfilling its genetic potential. It takes a couple of generations. There's a genetic factor here involved uh, that, you know, to to help deer reach their potential, it takes a little time. You know, Mississippi State did this experiment. They took some deer from the lower coastal plain in Mississippi, put them in some pens, fed them high quality food and, and high protein, and kept breeding them to other deer from the same lower coastal plain area. And it took two to three generations for those deer to become as big body wise and antler wise as deer from better quality regions in Mississippi. So it's not an overnight thing. It takes a few generations of deer on high quality nutrition before you start seeing deer, you know, achieving a potential that you know you didn't expect to see where you hunt.
4: Well, you know, uh, the older I get, the more I realize that a few years, five years, 10 years, is really not that much, you know, uh, almost nothing I've, you know, when you're young, you're so impatient. Uh, but almost nothing I've gotten quickly was really worth having, you know. So it, when you say, Hey, if you do this right in five years, you'll be in great shape. I mean, that's tomorrow, you know. The, the, yeah. <laughs> even though the years get less on the back end, it just seems like they come by so much quicker. I mean, that's tomorrow. If you start putting the work in right now for next season, In four years, you might shoot something that you'd be really proud of. You never thought you could on your place.
2: Yeah. yeah, And I tell people all all the time is to be realistic about that. And also, you know, kind of set some realistic goals. I mean, look, if you start into deer management like this, and let's say, you know, you've never killed a two and a half year old buck, don't go out there and say, well, I'm going to wait for a five and a half year old to come along next year. You know, there may not be one out there when you're starting out. How long is it going to take to produce a a five-and-a-half-year-old deer? Five years. So, (laughs) you know, set a goal. And next season, if you see a two-year-old and he makes you happy and you've never killed one, start there uh, and work your way up. And that way, you know, the next year, maybe you'll get a three-year-old and so forth. I I think everybody ought to take it in that stair step way. I know I did. My first deer was a a scraggly little, you know, 4 point, a yearling buck. So um, I think everybody ought to, you know, you got to be careful not to jump out there when you don't have a whole lot of experience and say, "I'm gonna wait for the big one." It might be a few years. You need some enjoyment and some recreation and some venison in the meantime.
4: Yeah, I mean, I fished for 18 years before I got a 10 pound bass. So I mean, you know, in the meantime, I caught a bunch of little ones. Yeah, <laughs> do I mean, you I do any too, Do or?
3: you do any supplemental feeding mm-hmm. on your property?
4: My dad
2: puts out a little corn, and he does that more defensively than anything. Uh, A few years ago, you know, they legalized hunting over bait in Georgia. He assumed that everybody would be out there corning, so he feels like he's got to put a little bit of corn out during deer season just to compete. I don't think it's necessary. The research has shown you're not pulling deer from far away. You know, they may move within their home range to stop by a corn feeder, but they're not leaving their home range and going over here where there's more corn. That's not happening. So, I I don't think it's necessary, but uh, he does it. What about about proteins? We don't have a a
4: supplemental feeding program. What about Uh,
3: proteins? Any protein?
4: No, we don't do that. So, the yellow acorns are not the key. Ignore the conventional knowledge. No corn. Fire is free. True. Yep. All right.
1: Yeah. Well, like you said, no protein, but if you're managing your property properly you're going to get more protein through natural forage sure right
2: yeah right that's yeah i'm not saying there's anything wrong with supplemental feeding uh or providing protein it's it's one of the tools that you can use um and some people do that but again let's look at the cost now you're talking about higher than food plots in terms of dollars per pound of protein provided to the deer um so that's where i'm just a fan of you know higher in sunlight because it's the cheapest thing absolutely that you can do and produce uh, more pounds of protein out there than you can supply in a trough. So um, again, nothing wrong with it. I am just I just want everybody to understand the, the costs involved with providing protein in that way. You know, it can be good to do all of it because truthfully, there's some research that shows you put a feeder out there, not every deer in the population uses that feeder or uses it equally um So by providing forage 365 days a year, every deer out there needs that. So it kind of needs to be your baseline and your foundation. And if you want to feed on top of that, uh, you know, go for it if you got the money.
4: So I, supplements are just supplemental. <laughs> deer are just as picky
3: with supplemental food with supplemental food sources. I've watched them. You, I've seen corn on the ground and deer walk right by it, and not even look at it. It depends on what time of year. There's certain times of year that. That's not what they're after. They're browse. They're, they're looking for a browse here, a browse there. They may see corn and walk right by it and not touch it. Same with
2: protein. The other problem I have with corn is that you're feeding so many things other than deer, particularly if you're throwing it out on the ground. You don't like you're, feeding, yeah. you're feeding coons and oh, yeah. possums and nest predators, uh, hogs. hogs. Uh, you know, So many other things are getting that beside deer. So, it's, again, it's just something to be aware of. It's, I'm, I'm not saying don't do it, but just understand the costs and the, and the negatives and disadvantages sure. that come with things.
3: We We had one piece of property that we never had hogs until we started feeding with corn. And then the hogs just came out of nowhere.
1: Yeah. So, I, I kind of want to double back on something real quick. Earlier, you mentioned girdling. And so for the people that don't know what girdling a tree is, can you explain that?
2: Yeah, it is taking a chainsaw, stepping up to the tree, and just walking in a circle around it and cutting a very shallow uh, groove in the trunk, just cutting through the cambium, cambium layer in a ring around the tree. Um, that's a girdle. And then you spray an herbicide cocktail in there. In that cut, a tiny amount of herbicide, you're just spraying it in there and that's it, the tree's dead. Um, it's a very quick way to go through a forest area that's whether it's got invasive trees or whether it's got just overabundant native trees, like I said, like sweet gums and quickly with a chainsaw. And if you got a buddy running the spray bottle, it can go even faster, quickly put some sunlight on the ground, that's what, what girdling spray is. I do it, you know, you can do hack and squirt where you take a machete or a hatchet, make a cut, squirt the herbicide in there it's the same thing but i use a chainsaw because when i'm going through woods improving them um there are several things i like to do with trees i want to kill i girdle and spray but then you come across some like like maples that if you cut it off at the stump it's going to put up stump sprouts and deer are going to browse that and it's pretty good deer forage i don't want to kill that maple tree If it's small enough for me to just cut off at the stump, I make a stump out of it and let it produce forage. So there are species like that I don't want to kill. I can just make, you know, Mississippi State calls it a mineral stump. And they call call it that because their research showed that the leaves on those little stump sprouts are higher in minerals and higher in protein than the leaves on that mature tree. If you picked them off for deer to eat them before you cut the tree down. You know, basically think about it. You've got this, the root system of an entire mature tree feeding a tiny little cluster of leaves. They're getting all of that, the value out of that root system. So that's good good forage. So I can do that with my chainsaw. And then the other thing too is you can make a hinge cut if you want to out of a small tree to create some instant cover or a little bedding thicket if that's what you need to do. You're walking through the woods with a machete. You can't do those other things. All you can do is, you know, hack and squirt. So when I'm doing... Um, herbicide treatments, like we, we do girdle and spray because you can do a number of things with that chainsaw.
4: And chainsaws have gotten a whole lot lighter since they come out with electric <laughs> saws. I used one the other day at uh, my wife's house because I have steel farm bosses. I got like a 272 and a 292 at the house. And uh, I needed to cut something in North Carolina in their yard. So we picked up one of these little battery powered saws. And that little thing was pretty cool. I mean, I was like, man, I could throw this in the boat so I can clear cut creeks when I'm creek crawling and trying to get to restrict to areas in my boat and it I don't have to deal with the gas and all that. It still needs bar oil, but I don't have to pack uh two stroke gas specially for it and all that. I was like, man, I'm definitely getting one of these for the boat. So that's what
2: I've got. I've got a steel rechargeable MS one twenty. I love it. It's super lightweight. It will not wear you out like you know, toting around a big chainsaw wheel. Um, and you know, you can get a lot of work done in on one charge. It's it's a, a super little saw. I highly recommend them. Oh yeah.
1: So, once I've gone into managing all my habitat and stuff like that, what are some signs that my deer herd is becoming a healthy deer herd?
2: One of the easiest ones is when you're skinning your deer or in the gut bucket, look for fat. Mm. If, If you have to peel away fat to get to the tenderloins, that's a good sign. If you pull out the kidneys, and you can't hardly tell they're kidneys because they're encased in fat, That's a good sign. In fact, the kidneys is really one of the first places you want to look. It's one of the first places where fat builds up on a deer. And, um, you know, when you, uh, if you open a deer up and you can see the kidneys as there's no fat on them, that's not a good sign. So right there is a very easy one. Simply the amount of fat on the inside of that animal, uh, you'll see it, of course, all over the hindquarters and other parts of the body, as we know from skin and deer. But when you see it, see globs of it, over those tenderloins and around the kidneys in that area, uh, that's what you want to see. So there's a real good sign for uh, good health. Now, still, you might see a couple of years ago, I killed a, what ended up being a six and a half year old buck. I killed him in December. He was rutted out. He was blind in one eye. His hocks were, you know, black. Uh, he was feeding in a food plot. The rut was over and he was worn out, but he was in there feeding and his kidneys were, completely, you know, just plain kidneys. There was no fat on him. That's how worn down he was from the rut. So with a really rutted out buck post-rut, you, you may not see that, but that's where, you know, if your does are showing all that body fat and you find a buck like that, it's okay. You know the food is out there. He'll recover on that through the winter. Looking at your habitat is another sign. Walking through your woods, getting to know your plants, and you get to know those those plants that are highly preferred by deer. Uh, the the honeysuckles and the greenbriars, pokeweed is a really good one in summer. uh, If you know pokeweed, if you see a lot of pokeweed out there, if you see honeysuckle, greenbriar, uh, the other things that they love to browse on, and and it's not all eaten to the dirt, that's a good sign. If you've got good amounts of good quality deer forage out there and they're not tearing it up, again, a good sign. You want to know that you've got more deer food out there than they can eat. Um, Looking at your food plots is a good one. I I always tell people, put a browse exclosure on every food plot. That's just a piece of fence. You form into a hoop and and pack it into the ground, stake it down in the dirt on part of your food plot. Let food plot grow up inside that cage where deer can't get to it. And that gives you a gauge of how much they've eaten. If that cage fills up with food plot and outside is nothing but dirt, that's not a good sign. So there's a good indicator. How much are deer tearing up your food plots? If they're hauling it all off, Uh, They don't have enough food at that point in the season. So it's signs like that, looking at your habitat, looking at, if you can see a a browse line in the woods, you're you're probably all familiar with what a browse line means. If you can see that where everything from neck high on you to the ground is being by deer, that's a warning sign. That's a red flag. Um, So looking at the habitat, walking around and asking yourself, if you were a fawn, where would you hide? And if you can't find any place, if it's all shady hardwoods, with nothing but dead leaves on the ground and you were a fawn, you'd be like hard pressed to find a place to hide from a coyote. That's not good. So it's, it's things like that. Um, And the rut too, the rut is a good sign. If you see a lot of scrape and rub activity and you see bucks chasing and you see fighting, that's a good sign that you've got a pretty good balance out there from a sex ratio standpoint, in terms of numbers of bucks to does, you know, you don't have to worry about it being one to one, but like I said, over time, if you take as many does as you do bucks you're going to have a roughly balanced sex ratio there their does to bucks. That leads to competition. That leads to fighting, chasing, grunting, uh, all the things we like to see. It helps your grunt call work better. It helps rattling antlers work better. We found that at our place, that as we did more deer management, all of a sudden grunt calls worked where they didn't work before. Rattling worked where it didn't work before. When a buck doesn't have to compete against other bucks to find estrus does, grunting and rattling means nothing to him. Mm-hmm. scents don't really mean that much. So, yeah, these are all signs of a good, healthy, tuned-up deer herd.
1: Stay tight. We'll be right back with a word from our sponsors. As we move through life, it's inevitable that we're going to find ourselves needing trusted advice from legal counsel, from business transactions to real estate, lawsuits to contract matters, We all need advice and assistance from time to time. Attorney Roman Hammes' multi-state law practice focuses on litigation, business law, and real estate. Roman helps individuals and business owners find solutions to their legal problems. If push comes to shove, Roman is an experienced litigator with extensive trial experience and the ability to take it all the way. He's been named Super Lawyer every year from 2016 to present. A distinction given to only 5% of practicing lawyers. Most importantly, Roman is an avid hunter, angler, conservationist, and proud supporter of the UPO nation. When you need dependable legal counsel, call Roman. 407-680-6050 or 843-324-1727 Or email roman at roman v com that's r o m a n at r o m a n v h a m m e s dot com offices florida and south carolina so <clears throat> We've talked about managing our property, talked about the health of our deer herd, and in the state of Florida, we have now just had our first case of CWD that has been recorded. So, I mean, in, in layman's terms, what is CWD for those these Floridians that are now freaking out about it?
2: Yeah. First thing I would say is, hold on, don't freak out. That's really the first message. Don't panic about this. Uh, y'all are not the first state to find it. I have a feeling Georgia will find it eventually too. Um, you're not the first, the only state dealing with this and working with it. Uh, it's nothing to panic about. So just calm down and you know don't freak out. That's the first message to your to your listeners. Um, this is a very slowly progressing disease and that's one of the important things to understand about it. The analogy I like to use, if you walked out your front door today and saw a hornet nest in the shrub by your front door, that's a serious situation, right? That's, that's a problem today. You got to deal with that. Um, But you've also got termites in your basement eating the floor. They've been there for years, right? You hadn't noticed them. They're going to be there for years more. One day down the road, it's going to be a serious problem. That's what CWD is. CWD is the termite eating your floor under your, in your basement. OK, not the hornet nest. The hornet nest is hemorrhagic disease, which is EHD or blue tongue is, is the thing that most most of us know it as. This is the virus that we have outbreaks in in late summer. You know, usually it tends to hit deer in the Midwest and the North harder than it does us down here because our deer have lived with it longer. They've got more immunity to it. But that's hemorrhagic disease. People want to compare the two and say, CWD in a problem because I don't see deer dying. That's how CWD works. Mm. Um, it is not a, a bolt of lightning like hemorrhagic disease that piles deer up in the creeks and you can smell them on the wind uh, when there's an outbreak. It's a very slow poison. That's the most important thing to understand about it. Uh, every deer that gets it is going to die, but it takes a while. Um, one to two years that a deer will carry CWD before it looks sick, that's a very important thing for hunters to understand. One to two years, it's carrying CWD, spreading it to other deer, developing the disease, but looks healthy. And it's not until the very end, that toward the end of that one to two years, that it will begin to look outwardly sick to you. And at that point, it's pretty much over. Deer's about dead and going to be dead soon. Now, the way this works is deer that have it may die of other things first. This is a neurodegenerative disease. It is uh, caused by a prion protein, and these things are building up in their nervous system, in their brain, and beginning to impair their function. Much like somebody that sort of has dementia, you know, it builds over time and they get more and more confused, more and more signs of, of dysfunction. works that way for a deer. So you can have deer get killed by cars or eaten by predators or even seen and shot by hunters because they had CWD, but they look healthy. The CWD predisposed them to being killed by these other things. Um, And so this is how CWD over time builds up mortality levels in the deer population. Now, we don't know yet whether y'all found an early outlier, you know, one of just a few deer there in Holmes County that have got CWD, or whether this is something more, Sinister that may have been there for a year or two and a lot of deer have got it and you just happen to catch it right there. We'll know soon as, as your uh, Fish and Wildlife Commission does more testing in that area to try to find out exactly what's going on. But look, this is a long-term fight. It's nothing to panic about. Hunting is going to go on in Florida. It's going to go in and on in Holmes County. It's going on in many states that have had CWD for years where the agency and the hunters are managing it, learning to live with it, learning to adapt to some of the new regulations you've got to deal with when you're hunting in a CWD zone, but it is not the end of the world. That's the number one message. Don't freak out. Don't go to social media and listen to the conspiracy theories and the hearsay that somebody's brother's, uncle's, sister's hairdresser said about CWD. Go to reputable sources. Go to the Fish and Wildlife Commission. Okay. Go to the National Deer Association. Go to science-based organizations that will tell you the truth about what this, this disease is and how we fight it and management and, and deal with
1: it. So I've heard it a lot, and, and even Vince has
4: compared it to what'd you compare it to? BSE, boge- uh, bovine spe- sponge form of cephalopathy. It's cow Right. So, which is also a prion disease. Um, I think there's enough case studies that if you eat contaminated, uh, if, if you become contaminated with it, you will get a uh, form of dementia called Crutchfeld Kruch- Jacobson's disease um it is contained to the neurological system of the cow which is why we don't like market brains even though like some cultures eat that stuff and and then after i think it's 24 months this is why like uh, all of our cows are on like a feedlot plan to get to the hook before i think it's 24 months um because that's as far up until you can make t-bone steaks after that you have to cut out that vertebral process and it becomes an eye bone steak you're not allowed to have anything that comes in contact Because they haven't found it in younger populations yet. Or, like you said, by the time they they catch it, it's much much tighter contained because it's run by, like, you know, FDA is all a part of this, USDA and all that. Um, and, And it's contamination. I think we found two cases in America in Washington State in, like, 2000, I think it was. They called it the cow that stole Christmas because they discovered it on Christmas in like Washington state. So they had to dig out a big hole and kill the whole herd and burn it and bury it. And, you know, we take all these measures to make sure that doesn't spread through our food supply because of the consumer uh, risk associated with it. So um, what would some of the consumer risk as, as hunters, we're going out, we're not going to the grocery store, we're getting our meat, filling our freezers in the woods. Are there any concerns about CWD and maybe shooting that deer before he's exhibiting signs and maybe consuming it should we be concerned about that or no um,
2: yeah so that's a big question because like you said BSE particularly in in the UK when they had that case years ago where some people did get sick from eating mad you know cow or beef that was infected with mad cow disease mm-hmm. this is a related disease and that's why it's got people concerned that it could jump from deer to humans there is no evidence to date that any hunter or any other person has ever been sickened by eating CWD-infected venison. And there are a lot of people monitoring this, a lot of health organizations and scientists watching this to find out. I've I've listened to a report on a study here just a couple weeks ago at a symposium in Denver, a long-term study by the CDC, looking at hunters in areas like Colorado, Wyoming, and Wisconsin that have had CWD in deer for years, and they are seeing no patterns of the human variant of this disease that you mentioned, the creutzfeldt mm-hmm. jakobs disease, CJD. No patterns related to hunting and, and CWD and deer, but they still say, look, this takes many years of study. It's the kind of thing that you know could take years or some level of consuming and ta- contaminated venison to cause or trigger it to jump the, to the species barrier to humans. They just can't be 100% certain that our risk is zero and so the caution is, bottom line is, the, the news is good. It looks good. It looks like there's a strong barrier between deer and people when it comes to health concerns, because certainly a lot of hunters have over the years eaten CWD-contaminated deer, whether they knew it or not.
4: Now, it, it mostly like being contained today. Oh, sorry.
2: Go ahead. What, what they, this is the, the main point. What they say is, be careful. If you hunt in one of these zones, if you hunt in a zone where CWD is known, get your deer tested, and wait for the results before you eat it. It's pretty simple. It's basically just trying to minimize your risk. Your risks are low, but you can drive them even lower if you test your deer and don't eat it if it's positive. So that's what the scientists continue to advise. But again, there's no evidence anyone's ever been sickened by eating CWD-contaminated venison.
4: Now, testing, is that a program that's run at uh, some of these places, deer processors, or where would you get that done? Your deer processor do it for you? or you know, send it out, let you know.
2: In these zones where CWD is known, and I know the Fish and Wildlife Con- uh, Conservation Commission is going to be setting up this in Holmes County and other areas. They'll be putting these, uh, the infrastructure in place before deer season for you to be able to get your testing done. It's done in various ways. There might be a check station you can run by and they'll collect the lymph nodes out of your deer. There might be a refrigerated drop box where you can drop your deer's head in there and you drop it with your information information. They send it off, get it tested, and a week or two weeks later, you get an email with your results, whether CWD was found or not. So it's generally in areas where they have the disease. They'll make it fairly easy for you to get this done, and we certainly advise people to do that. Um, And not only because of the health concern, but because it helps the agency track the disease. Mm -hmm. Testing and monitoring and tracking and knowing where it is and knowing the prevalence rate, what percentage of deer out there have it, those are incredible, uh, incredibly valuable pieces of information for managing the situation, and that's why we encourage hunters to get their deer tested if they hunt in one of these zones.
4: Okay. Uh, do you think we'll ever reach a critical mass of having enough case studies to really be able to determine if there's a link, or is it right now we just don't have enough information? Is that the situation? Or we have enough, and so far there's not a link, and or we're waiting to accumulate a critical mass of enough cases for us to really be able to determine you know, f- from a food safety standpoint.
2: Yeah, I remember hearing one expert who, who works at the uh, National Institute of Health Rocky Mountain Laboratories in Montana, and he's a hunter, who's been involved in a, you know, 13-year-long study where he's been trying to make, he, he's studying uh, macaques. They're, they're actually, it's a species of macaque called a cynomolgus macaque. They are the most genetically similar to humans of any animal that they can work with. He's been trying to make them develop CWD by feeding them and injecting them and doing other tests with them with, with uh, CWD-infected venison. He's failed to make it happen. He feels pretty confident that there's a, a strong barrier. And he also says that, look, these, all the years that go by, every year that goes by and we continue to not see any pattern of human disease in hunting areas and among hunters in areas that have had CWD for many years, makes me feel better and better. But he will still tell you if you ask him, would you feed CWD positive medicine to yourself and your family? And he'll say no. And it's just because, again, we can't be 100 percent certain with this. This disease, it's not a bacteria. It's not a virus. It's not something we understand well. It is something that's relatively little understood. The disease in people, the CJD, is a mystery. It's 100 percent fatal if you get it. They can't stop it it seems to be sporadic where it pops up. So it's it's still much of a medical mystery. And we're trying to learn as much as we can about it. Experts are. um, But it's just not certain enough at this point to say that, you know, whether it is, you know, it might be that some people are genetically disposed to get this. And if they eat the venison, it might harm them where it wouldn't harm somebody else. It might be that younger people that eat the venison are more likely to develop when they're older. So it's just thinking, questions that will take years to really gain 100% certainty. I guess, I don't know that I'm answering your question yet, but bottom line is I've listened to a lot of these experts. I've interviewed a lot of them. I wouldn't eat CWD-positive medicine, I can tell you that, even though it's probably safe.
4: So the conventional wisdom is like, you know, err on the side of caution, but no need for panic.
2: Correct. You know, the talking with people like hunters in Wisconsin who are in some of these areas where they've really – they're getting over 50% of their bucks now that have it. And it's it's really a pretty bad situation. Some of them talk about, you know, dealing with the, you know, psychological impact of killing deer, finding out you can't eat them. Uh, that's tough. But I try to take the perspective of this, that, look, you removed a deer from the landscape that had this disease. Right. You helped.
4: That's me. That's
2: we've got to do so that's a that's a win mm-hmm. and in these cases the state will give you a replacement tag so just disp- dispose of the venison in an appropriate place go get your replacement tag and go back hunting go get you another deer you know it's a you, we have to be thinking of this as a win if we kill a, a cwd positive deer we remove that animal from the landscape that's the kind of thing we've got to do to help keep prevalence rates low and, and slow the spread
1: so i know some states where it's popped up I don't know if to say that they've essentially like kind of had an open season on deer, but they have, you know, upped their harvest rates significantly. Do you, has that impacted those areas
2: at all or? You know, I don't know a single area that's got CWD where they've come in and they've wiped out the deer or really had a major impact on getting rid of deer. Have they reduced numbers? Yes. In many cases, they are coming in and dropping the density. That's one of the goals is that to reduce deer-to-deer spread is, you know, getting the density down um, to a more manageable level. They're not out to eradicate the deer. Um, And really, the truth is, most state agencies are struggling even to hit their doe quotas, um, you know, because we're running out of hunters. Everybody can't eat, but about, you know, one or two deer a year as it is, it's tough to find people and keep them out there and get them to continue filling their tags. In most areas, they're struggling to hit the number of doe harvests they'd like to get in these areas and the number of, of bucks that they'd like to get harvested. So, yes, you know, you'll hear people say they're going to come in and wipe out the deer. That's untrue. That's not the goal. But you do have to come in and they've got a test. They're going to do this in Holmes County. They're going to do this in any other county where it's newly found. They're going to come in and they're going to shoot some deer because they've got to try to find out what the prevalence rate is. Are we talking about one deer and they happen to, you know, hit by a car and they happen to find it? Or are we talking about 100 deer in that county that have got it or more? They've got to find that out soon. That's how we find out and and manage this disease is knowing where it is and how prevalent it is. You know, this is the kind of thing that we can live with and continue enjoying hunting deer in an area with CWD for many years to come as long as we manage it. As long as we manage to keep prevalence rates low in many areas in Missouri, in Illinois and in other states. They're keeping prevalence rates in their outbreak zones down in the single digits—one, two, three percent of deer out there have got the disease—and staying steady at that level for years. If you do that, hunting's never going to be impacted. Hunting's going to continue and be just as good as it's always been. That's the hope. That's what you want—is to catch it early enough and keep it low. Um, if you don't do anything about it, if you don't come in and test deer and you don't try to take a few, and you just leave it alone. That prevalence rate is just going to climb up and climb up and creep on up higher and higher till you reach a Wisconsin-type situation where you're looking at 50% or more of your bucks out there have got the disease. So, so uh, go ahead.
1: Uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, so essentially you said like reducing the density. You're, you're trying to reduce like a, a deer-to-deer contact kind of situation. So is, is CWD spread via contact or
4: yeah that was my question is this nose-to-nose touching is is making the spread it, it's not bile it, it's not uh, bacterial or viral it, it's in the neurological system so how does that get out of one deer that's infected and into the other is it through birth and you know like cwd deer has a baby it's gonna have cwd and so on and so forth or like how does this increase itself in the population and uh other than you know shooting a CWD deer, putting one on the board, taking a win, getting another tag, and go getting another deer, um, you know what do we do about it? How do we slow it down?
2: So yes, it spread deer to deer, but also it's an infected deer is shedding the prions into the environment. Uh, these prion proteins, they're very tough. They're almost indestructible. They can live out there in the soil for years and still infect deer. Hmm. They shed it in their saliva, in their urine, in their feces. Semen, blood, um, secretions from glands. Uh, It's in their meat and muscle, so it's in their carcass. Uh, When they die, uh, it can go through a coyote and come out the other end and still be viable. It can Mm -hmm. go through a crow and come out the other end and still be viable. So whether, let's say, a deer licks a feeder and another deer comes along and licks the same spot, that's how infection can be transmitted. Let's say in a scrape. And they have found CWD prions in soil, in scrapes. They've also found them on the licking limb where deer are licking and rubbing their glands on their forehead. Um, So it can be transmitted that way. The deer doesn't have to touch the other deer. They can lick, taste, whatever, uh, ingest, soil, um, feces, urine, whatever it is from another deer, blood, meat, and, and pick this up the same way. So, you know, that's... This is one of the reasons that we recommend when CWD is found in an area, you need to come in and you need to stop baiting and feeding. You need to stop putting out minerals because these sites are shown to concentrate deer and concentrate urine, concentrate feces. CWD prions will gather in these areas. You're talking about deer licking mineral blocks. That's a great way to transmit this deer to deer. So reducing that kind of super concentration of deer and sharing food sources like that real close quarters like at a feeder or at a mineral block is the kind of thing that needs to stop once you've got CWD in a particular area. Um, so stopping that kind of spread, you know, the other, so the, the other way this can be transmitted is if you go out of state, we don't know how this deer ended up in Holmes County or how CWD ended up there. Uh, the two main ways are moving a live deer, meaning on wheels um, and moving a carcass. And hunters do that as well. Many of us, you know, think about uh, leaving Florida and coming up into Georgia or Alabama or further and going on a deer hunt. You're close enough to home. You can, you know, gut a deer, throw in the carcass in the back of the truck and head home, finish getting it out and processing it home and, and put the rest of the carcass in the wood behind your house. If that deer had CWD from another state, you just brought home CWD prions to your state. And if deer in that backyard contact that, they can get it. So, you know. This is why many states are banning carcass, carcass importation. It's against the law to cross state lines with a whole deer carcass now. Uh, it's just a matter of getting people to know this. States are starting to enforce it. Kentucky was in the news the other day for uh, suing a man to recover their investigation costs for uh, hunting him down and finding the deer carcass that he had brought back from out of state that was in fact CWD positive. So enforcement, they've been working to inform hunters, stop bringing carcasses back from out of state. And now they're starting to enforce those laws. So, you know, we've all, and now what you're going to see in Florida is don't leave Holmes County with a deer. They're going to be, you know, advertising and educating hunters about that. Don't kill a deer in Holmes County and drive out of there and go somewhere else because you can transport CWD prions to another area of the state that way.
3: Don't you have to remove the bones and all only meat?
2: Yes. That's what's recommended before you cross state lines. And, and that's usually what the law is. Boned out meat only. You can have cleaned hides that don't have any flesh on them. You can have a clean buck skull plate and antlers or a, say a European mount and antlers as long as there's no brain material in there or flesh of any kind. So bone, antlers, a clean hide and boned out meat. That's pretty much it that you can cross state lines with. So
1: as private landowners what can we do to try and, you know, manage or cease CWD on our property? Yeah. Like, you know, you, you talked about that prions live through like feeders and so they can be on forage. So if, if we're better on our forage, does that also decrease our, if we're taking better care of our forage, can that decrease our chances of having CWD in our on our property or...
2: Well, compared to, say, a feeder, yes, the more forage you've got out there, you don't have deer as often feeding mouth-to-mouth and, you know, eating food with saliva on it and things like that, like you can have at a mineral lick or, uh, you know, a feeder with one, you know, one of these feeders where the deer sticks its mouth in a particular part of the feeder to get the food out rather than just eating it off the ground. Although, when the feed's on the ground, there's urine there. Y'all have been, you know, you've seen areas Mm -hmm. where deer are concentrated, there's feces, there's urine on the ground there, so... If CWD is in the area, there's going to be prions there too. Um, So yes, your habitat management is a benefit. The biggest things that we can all do are, um, again, don't transport carcasses. If you're in a CWD zone and they're asking you to get your deer tested, do that. Submit your deer for testing. Um, If you see sick deer, we can all do this. If you see a sick deer. Report that immediately to the agency. Let them come investigate that Um, because, you know, if it's in a new area that could, it may not be CWD. Uh, Very often, like I said, these deer die before they reach that point. It might be hemorrhagic disease. It might be a brain abscess. A couple of years ago, some neighbors of ours in southeast Georgia had a deer wandering in circles in the pecan orchard. And uh, dad texted me the video and it scared me. I thought, oh, Lord, this is it. And DNR came and collected it. It was a brain access. It wasn't CWD. So, phew, thank goodness. But it's important for us when we see sick deer, you know, don't just take a video and put it on social and go, look at this. Call your state wildlife agency first and say, I'm looking at a deer that's behaving very strangely. Um, And let them decide whether they can come, you know, investigate or
4: not. Or at least Um, tag them. What's that? I said, at least tag them in the post at FWC. Hey, look at this. (laughs) Yeah, there you go.
2: That's right so you know reporting sick deer not moving carcasses uh, educating others encouraging your fellow hunters to know about these things not about hey if you got a buddy that's that's heading up to uh missouri to go deer hunting do they know where they're going are they hunting in one of missouri's cwd zones if they don't know they should ask them to find out before they go and if they're going to come home don't come home with a deer carcass um, so educating about these things, encouraging them to get their deer tested and, and participate in these things, you know, landowners in Holmes County are probably going to be asked by the agency to come in and maybe assist with harvesting some deer out of season to get some testing done between now and deer season. Probably. I don't know that for sure, but that's one of the strategies most states pursue. And I'd say to those landowners, help do it. Let them come in there. Maybe help them shoot the deer. If they'll give you the tags that often happens, they'll give the landowner, tags to take deer out of season, to help get these deer tested. Don't refuse that. Okay. We're only as hunters, if we don't get our deer tested and we don't support the agency and we don't help with these things, we're only hurting ourselves. We're only allowing a situation to worsen and CWD to spread by not helping the state monitor and figure out where this disease is and how much of it there is out there. So I urge, you know, landowners to work with the agency. They are not trying to eradicate the deer. That's never happened anywhere. Uh, no agency is trying to do that, but it does require some deer harvest to try to find out, you know, where this disease is and how
4: much of it there is. That That's critical information. So to quote a wise sergeant I had once when I was a young Marine, bad news only gets worse with time. So, you know, he's, you need to tell me right away. Bad news only gets worse with time. So if something happens, you know, it, it's it it contingent on us to to observe and report. And, and, you know, instead of being, trying to ignore this problem away, maybe it's not CWD. Maybe I'm just thinking. it is. It's, it's a, Just call. Just say, hey, I saw a deer. He couldn't coordinate his four quarters. He was walking in circles. He was acting real weird. Just call right away. Vince,
2: can you quote that one
3: more time, please, and look at Jordan? Bad, yeah, news, I know.
4: bad news only gets worse with time, Jordan. Thank you.
2: Yeah, look, if you if you see a sick deer when you hunt, and that's the first CWD deer in that county, and you don't report it, You're only going to allow that disease to spread to other deer and take root and it will be more and more difficult to manage over time until, you know, until it's found. But if that's the first deer and you call it in and they find that early enough, you can actually stop this and keep it at a very low level once you know about it early. So that's why it's critical to participate in that. Um, You know, I urge all hunters, you know, tune in to your state agency, sign up for their emails, follow them on social. If they have a public hearing, go to it and listen and hear what they have to say. You know, this is not hunters versus the agency. We need to work together on this problem because, you know, our goal as hunters and for them as the agency, our mission in this fight is to slow the spread and keep the prevalence rate low while science works on this problem. They are working on it. They're doing research. There's no breakthroughs yet, and there's probably not going to be one tomorrow or next week. It's going to take some time, but they're working on it. And we've got to buy that time by slowing the spread. And to remember, too, you know, to hunters who are in Holmes County or any other county with CWD, it's not the end of the world. Hunting is going to go on there. Uh, you're still going to have hunting, particularly if you help the agency manage this and keep the prevalence rate low. My boss, Nick Penazotto, lives in Wisconsin. I'm sorry, Pennsylvania. He's our CEO of the National Deer Association. And a couple of years ago, he actually went and bought land in a, CWD, a known CWD zone. He wasn't sure, you know, hey, should I do this? It turned out to be a good decision. He's had some great hunting there. There are, of course, some of the regulations that are, um, you know, a little impractical impractical and and change some of the traditional ways that you deer hunt. You may not be able to leave the county with a deer and go to your favorite taxidermist six counties away. You may not be able to go to your favorite processor if they're not in the county. You may need to go to a check station and submit your lymph node for testing. You know, there are some, some hardships that come with this. But it's not the end of the world. There's nothing I've ever seen from a regulatory standpoint that I wouldn't personally put up with to be able to continue deer hunting uh, every season each fall. So life goes on in these zones. You can still hunt. Uh, It's still quality hunting. It's still worth owning land in these areas. You know, it's not the end of the world. Don't panic. Um, Be ready to help.
4: Man, I was having flashbacks. I thought you were about to tell me two weeks to slow the spread. But, uh (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> we've all heard that, but I, I like to think our scientific organizations in the conservation world have uh, maintained their their uh, stature. I still think of them pretty highly. I, I, you know, I believe they tell me the truth, and, and that, when I give them information, they're going to make good decisions for me with it. And uh, you know, I still trust them. Um, that be well, Remember,
2: said, they're deer hunters too. You know, most of them are deer hunters, just like us. Right. Most of your staff on your agency, most of the deer project leaders around the country that we've gotten to know personally, they are deer hunters just like us, first and foremost. That's why they got into this business. Many of them struggle with the difficulty of having to manage CWD, trying to keep hunters. They want hunters to be happy and enjoy deer hunting. mm -hmm, Meanwhile, mm -hmm. they've got to try to manage CWD, and it puts them in a tough spot. And In many cases, you've got deer hunters angry at them about it. So, they're in a tough
4: position. To summarize, it sounds like we're living in a changing landscape. Is this something that we could see a future that's CWD free or is this the new normal so to speak or is this just something we're gonna have to bring into uh, mind when we manage deer and, and be mindful with our carcasses and, and all that going forward and life will just go on and, and you know we'll make the best of it we can and maybe one day we can have a CWD free world but uh, it seems like it's out there I don't is there any putting it back in the box?
2: No there's no putting it back in the box. Um, you know the only state that ever did that was New York they found one wild deer tested positive with CWD very close to a captive deer farm that had the disease they thought it had escaped that was I think 15 years ago continued monitoring has not found a single additional case of CWD in that area so New York seems to be the one case that ever caught it early enough to stop it hmm. so you know that that's pretty rare most of the rest of the case it's it's I think, like you said, what's more likely is this is going to be the new normal. Um, I don't I do think we will solve this problem one day. But like I said, it's not going to be next week, it's not going to be next year. This is um, the science is advancing. We're learning new things all the time. I just came from the CWD symposium where they're talking about new breakthroughs. I just wrote an article last week about some new research that shows that, you know, where we thought CWD prions were damn near indestructible. If you feed it to a bobcat or mountain lion, you destroy most of it. So the stomach of a mountain lion or a predatory cat like a bobcat destroys 96% or more of CWD prions that they eat, destroyed completely. That's good, That's we didn't know that until this year. That's good news. You know. So we're learning little things like that all the time about this disease. Um, they're working on vaccines. We don't have one yet, um, but those every trial that they do th- that fails They learn things from those trials that that help them in the next trial. So So the work is ongoing, and we just got to buy time for that. But, Vince, I think it is before long going to just become the new normal, much like QDM became the new normal over the past 30 years compared to traditional deer management or lack of deer management. This will, for most of the country in the coming years, become the new normal in deer hunting.
4: Do you think in areas that have mountain lions, panthers and bobcats that will start to manage those predators differently to maybe help with that uh you know cwd in the herd you know if a, if a mountain lion picks off a cwd deer that's one less we got to do as a hunter one less out there spreading it um typically you know people manage pretty hard against things like uh coyotes and bobcats and stuff like that because of predation uh is are we going to start looking at these in a more friendly way as a helper to us maybe
2: I don't know that that's really a practical outlook. Um, You know, mountain lions are are not a very common animal, even where they have them. Mm -hmm. Um, They there is some science that shows they do tend to eat more CWD infected mule deer and elk than healthy mule deer and elk. I mean that makes sense. The deer are impaired; they're probably easier prey. Yeah, that's good to know, and it's good to know that those mountain lions, which then hang out around that carcass for several days until they entirely consume it, that that you know they're pretty much clean, kind of a mini. CWD cleanup crew, but I don't think you'll ever have enough mountain lions for that to make a significant difference. Bobcats, we've got them everywhere. Pretty much we've got whitetails, but they're just not a significant enough predator of adult deer Mm -hmm. that that would ever, they'll scavenge a deer carcass. We know that. So there's some cleanup value there too, but no, I don't think either, either animal is going to become, you know, uh, a tool in fighting so
1: you said, you know, there's, there's look at vaccines. I mean, how, how does that go about? Are, are, are you think they're going to try to catch deer and, and I mean, or if you're reporting a deer that has CWD, are they, you think it's going to be maybe give it a vaccine and see what it does to it?
2: So yeah, a lot of the trials that they're working with, they're working with captive animals, captive elk, captive deer, et cetera, out West. Um, There are trials ongoing in a lot of areas where they've been working on vaccines for years. Most of those have failed. Uh, There are some new trials that I just uh, learned about that uh, have shown some promise not in curing the disease, but in actually creating an immune response, which that's new. They've never been able to do that with a vaccine before because prion is unlike um, a bacteria or a virus, you know, where you can build a vaccine off a virus uh, literally in- injecting parts of the virus into you or me and it helps you build up immunity to that virus when you encounter it again. Prions don't work that way. You inject part of a prion into an animal, it gets CWD. Mm. Um, so just the new development that they've created an immune response with a vaccine is a, is a is good news. We're still many years off from that. And when there is a vaccine, if there is one, that's going to be more useful for cleaning up, say, captive deer herds uh, in the deer farm industry than it will be for managing Wild deer; it'd be very difficult uh, to, you know, vaccinate all of our yeah, wild yeah, deer. Yeah. Uh, there would lazy. probably have to be some kind of a pro- program in some of the heaviest hit areas where we're, you know, vaccinating and releasing a few deer as we can, almost like starting over with restocking. I don't mean the deer would be gone. I just mean that we looked at restocking in, in the 50s and 60s as this enormous chore by moving a truckload of two, three, four deer here and there and releasing them, and over time it made a big difference. So. You know, again, if one day if there's ever a vaccine program, it might be like that for wild deer where it's something over the course of years that we slowly rebuild deer populations with healthy deer. okay,
1: so you're what essentially what we're looking at there is like uh, say they find a vaccine that makes that deer immune. You're looking at releasing several deer that would be immune to that to repopulate to hope that they create other deer that are immune to that disease.
2: yeah, I mean that's that's in theory. Yeah. Yeah. In theory, Jordan, it's, it's, uh, we're all, we're talking hypothetical here. So, yeah. Yeah. All right.
1: So, have they yet to find any deer in the wild that seem to be immune to it? Or,
2: no. There is a genetic strain of deer that appears to live longer with the disease, but that is not true resistance. I've talked to some experts on that and they've urged me look, don't use the word resistance when talking about these deer with that genetic strain. They're not resisting it. They're just living longer before they die of it. And that's actually not necessarily a good thing. The longer a deer is out there, the more it's spreading prions in the environment into other deer. If this thing killed a deer the first day, we wouldn't have a problem. You know, that. the problem is they live a long time with it. That's that's both good news and bad news. The bad news is they're spreading the disease. The good news is it doesn't wipe out deer populations overnight. They live a long time with it. Those can actually give birth to fawns. Bucks can breed other does and, you know, live a few years before they actually die of it. So populations don't crash. They don't vanish. It's a very, very slow process that over time, you know, in the hardest hit areas that have, that have been around for you know decades, what happens is these populations eventually reach the point to where the CWD slice of the pie means that the hunter harvest slice of the pie can't be as big as it used to be or the population is going to start shrinking. So, yeah, this is it. I almost wish it killed them faster because then, you know, it'd be a lot, it would spread slower and be easier to deal with.
3: How long has CWD been around and where do you know of the first case of it being found?
2: So, it was identified in the 60s among captive research deer in Colorado, I believe. Um, And also in Colorado, first identified there in wild deer, and elk. Um, You know, there's a lot of mystery uh, surrounding the origin of CWD. Where, you know, where did it come from? Has it been here all along? You know, frankly, I don't care really about the history. It's just, we know it's real. We know it's here. We know it's now. we got to deal with it. Um, You know, there's some evidence. I I listened to a talk just the other day uh, on a a researcher working in Norway. Norway now has CWD in uh, moose. And reindeer, and maybe one other species, I think, there of deer in Norway. And they've done some work now that has determined that that strain of CWD is unique from the North American strains. With Korea, they've got it in Korea and elk, and we know that came from elk shipped from America to Korea. Captive elk from the deer farming industry shipped overseas that had CWD and took it to Korea. But they're now thinking that in Norway, that's not what happened. These experts actually say what they think happened in Norway is spontaneous generation, spontaneous sporadic appearance of the disease. That's what they think happens in humans. When humans get CJD, they think it is a sporadic uh, pop-up of the disease that that didn't actually have any origin outside of the people that got it, other than it just sort of spontaneously appeared. Mm -hmm. So they think now that these, these diseases have the ability sometimes to spontaneously appear just like scrapie and sheep did and other related diseases. So where did it come from originally? Nobody really knows, but at least documented here in the U.S., the earliest known were in the late 1960s in Colorado.
4: Is there cross-contamination between different undulates? Like can it come off of a, an elk to a deer and, yes. and so forth, or is it specific? Okay. Yes. Okay, cool. Elk, mule Not deer, white cool,
2: but... tail deer, moose. They're all susceptible. Hmm.
4: So,
1: you know, I, I think we've talked about it a little bit, but if I am looking for a deer that has it, and am I, I'm, I'm suspecting a deer has it, it would be because it looks like that deer has lost its cognitive senses, correct?
2: Yeah, I'll, it can be anything from, you know, the most severe toward the end. They're going to look bony and skinny. They're going to look like they're hungry. They may not be able to stand well. They may be drooling a lot. Um, They may just stand there and not even walk. They may walk in circles. They lose their fear. So, But again, that's the end stage. You rarely see that except in a captive animal that's being studied and protected until it dies of that end stage. They often die of other things first. I'll give you a good example. A friend of mine named Paul Lanier who lives in Wisconsin, he's an outdoor rider. He and his dad own, I think, 60, 70 acres in uh, Richland County, Wisconsin, right in the heart of the Southwest, uh, original Southwest zone in Wisconsin. It's now in almost every county in Wisconsin, but the real heart of it is in Southwest West Wisconsin now. They're now seeing about half of their deer test positive that they killed there on their family land. And last year, I believe it was, Paul had trail camera pictures of a buck, healthy looking buck, nice buck, three, four year old adult buck in Wisconsin. Coming to an artificial waterhole that Paul had set up in the woods, a little watering pond, and he would come to that waterhole 20, 30 times a day in broad daylight and drink. And that's just not normal behavior for a whitetail, not a not a whitetail buck in heavily hunted state like Wisconsin. They don't move in the daylight that much. They don't drink that much. He was completely healthy otherwise, moved healthy, was going through the rut, he was getting pictures of him, working scrapes, chasing does, but Paul told his dad, I bet you that buck's got CWD, and sure enough, his dad killed the buck, and he tested positive. So, you know, it can be strange behaviors like that, just simply not acting like a deer, moving a lot in daylight. This is one of the reasons that studies show that these deer die being shot by hunters well before they ever you know, die of the disease itself, it makes them susceptible to other diseases like pneumonia. They can't fight off other diseases as well as they're declining from the CWD. You know, the very first deer that tested positive in Mississippi, a hunter saw it die, was sitting in his deer stand and saw this buck staggering around, fall over and couldn't get up. And it really wasn't that emaciated. They tested it. It tested positive. For CWD, but it had pneumonia. It was the pneumonia that killed the deer. So, um, yeah, it's it's difficult to say, look for this in, in in a deer with CWD. I got friends that hunt in Ames Plantation in Tennessee, in Tennessee's outbreak zone. They're now uh, got a, around 50% prevalence rate. Half the bucks they bring to the skinning shed test positive, and almost none of them look sick. I asked Dr. Houston that. I, he's, he runs the program there, the management program. And I said, uh, you know, so y'all are testing 50% at the skinning poll. Not, not not like the test is there. At the poll, later on, you get the results back to show they're, they're positive. But he said, yeah, half our bucks. And I said, how many of them look sick? And he said, none yet. Not a single one yet.
1: Hmm.
2: They're all healthy, fat bucks with black tarsals that have been fighting and working scrapes and chasing does. Um, so yeah, that's the problem.
1: All things that increase the spread.
4: Yes. Yeah. Hey, the upshot is you got a higher rate of shooting a trophy if they're out acting dumb.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, we now know that in whitetails, bucks are about two to three times more likely to get it, uh, than does. Hmm. just from lifestyle. You know, they travel around during the rut, they're visiting and fighting, you know, visiting a lot of other deer, working scrapes. They're fighting each other. And then in the summer, they come back into bachelor groups. They groom each other closely. They're swapping spit as they groom each other. Uh, so, you know, they just kind of live a lifestyle that, that tends to uh, give them the disease faster than, than does do. It's actually the opposite in elk. In elk, the cows have two to three times higher prevalence rates than the bulls because their breeding system is so much different than the whitetails.
1: Hmm. And this was actually a doe in the state of Florida that was found with it, correct?
2: That's right. Four-and-a-half-year-old doe, I understand.
1: Yeah. Now, we don't
2: don't know whether, you know, that—I know y'all have, you know, captive deer farming in Florida. I don't know if there's any of those facilities in Holmes County. I I don't know anything about that. So we don't know whether this deer was, like, a deer farm escapee, a wild deer that got it from a deer farm, um, you know, a wild deer that got it from, you know, carcass importation. Or maybe there's parts of Alabama that have it that we don't know yet, and this deer dispersed from Alabama because the next nearest cluster is, you know, northwest Alabama that we know of. So Yeah,
1: I was going to say, because Holmes County is not far from being a border county. It is a border county. Is it a border county? on Alabama. That's what I thought. Yeah.
3: Yeah, it is. I know it put a hurting on the deer management of private deer farms because they're not allowed to ship anything out of the state anymore.
2: Yeah, the, the deer farming industry is definitely suffering because, you know, not only that, the regulations about transporting deer, uh, but, you know, many of these farms that get the disease have to be depopulated. Now, many times the government comes in with tax money and pays them indemnity fees, pays them for the deer that have to be killed, but still they lose their livelihood. They're losing their business. You know, many of them lose their land. So this industry has been hurt by this disease uh, for sure.
1: So. You know, you, you, you said that there are some new data that you've discovered. Can Are you able to elaborate on any of that new data? Or
2: Yeah, some of it I've already mentioned. Like I said at this symposium that I picked up a lot of the new research, the bobcat stuff, you know, that that was new information. The vaccine showing the, the possibility of producing uh, an immune response, that was new information. Um, you know, the new studies on human health. Uh, so, there, there's a ton of new stuff out there, all the time. There's just no breakthrough. That's the problem, you know. The the state agencies are tell you, look, it's great to have better monitoring tools and better testing result or or test methods that get results faster. We're probably moving rapidly toward a field test that hunters will probably be able to carry soon. I don't mean this season, but in a couple of years, we'll probably have some kind of test you can carry and. Uh, test your deer yourself and find out on the spot. That's great. something we're working toward, you know, rapidly. That'd be good. But again, you know, all these things are good and and we're learning and they are advancements, but it's still not the silver bullet. It is not a cure. It's not a vaccine. It's not the breakthrough that we need that will reverse the problem. And, and that's, that's what we're still hoping for. That's what we got to have. That's why our organization is pushing for more funding for research and again, pushing to, slow the spread so we can buy time they need time and they need money to do this research
4: well if i was a scientist i'd aim my attention on what uh bacteria lives in the gut flora of the felines that seems to (laughs) dismember this prion you know it's time to start swabbing some augers and figuring some stuff out
2: yes and they're working on that the person that did the bobcat study actually told me that was the next phase of the study was to try to figure out why is it just the digestive juices of a cat's stomach you know, a cat is not like a coyote. They have to eat almost 100 percent meat. They can't eat blackberries and persimmons like a coyote will. Uh, so um, that may have something to do with it. Their, their digestive juices or whatever are just more potent. Or like you said, it may be something in the microbiome in their in their gut. Uh, that's something they're going to be looking into. So, yeah, there's there's good news out there in, on a lot of fronts good news on the human health front that, that nobody's turning up sick, not even in areas where hunters have been most likely eating CWD deer and elk for decades now. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of good news, but still not, you know, one expert at the, at the conference said, we don't need a silver bullet. We need silver buckshot. We need a lot of things. And that's, that's, that's a good analogy. We need a lot of different tools. It's going to take a lot of different tools because say, for example, cleaning this disease up in captive deer is going to be a different matter than cleaning it up in wild deer. Cleaning it up in the wild is going to be much more difficult. So, um, yeah, we need a lot of new tools and we need them fast.
1: So you said that the uh, NDA is, you know, pushing funding towards that. And a lot of the NDA, I assume, gets their uh, funding from memberships. Yes. So, I mean, what do we get as if we join the NDA? What what are some of our uh, benefits of joining the NDA?
2: So I'll just tell you primarily what I like to think of as the primary benefit is that we pursue our mission with your money. That's what we want to be seen as, is we are a nonprofit charity. We have a mission and that is to ensure the future of wild deer, wildlife habitat and hunting. And if you follow our communications, you'll learn all the things that we're doing uh, on that front, not only in diseases, but in, Education of deer hunters, continuing educating them about wise habitat and herd management. You know, diseases aside, we're not all CWD all the time. Uh, we're doing a lot of stuff. We're doing hunter recruitment. Uh, we work in advocacy, which means watching the legislature in Florida and other states. And when good deer policy comes down the pike, we let you know. When bad deer policy comes down the pike, we let you know. So we're always working on these things. That's what the primary thing I want you to think of as getting when you support us, whether you join or you donate or whatever it is. And that's the action that we pursue on behalf of deer and deer hunters. Uh, But yes, there are benefits. Uh, We've got, we just added a new free basic membership level. You sign up, you get our emails. Uh, All we require is your email address and a physical address because that physical address lets us geo-target you with specific information for you. Friday, in fact, we sent an email to our list in Florida to all deer hunters on our email list in Florida about the CWD news with a message of, look, don't panic. It's going to be okay. You can live with this. You can manage it. Here's some things to know about this disease. So um, I don't know if any of y'all saw that, but that's how we use the physical address is geo-targeting hunters with information, whether it's about policy, whether it's about a public hearing coming up in your neck of the woods, whether it's a regulation change that, that we, either we think you should like or maybe not like. You know, we keep you informed on those things. So we do regular prize drawings from that database of our of our basic members and giveaways, things like that. Uh, so there's benefits there. We have a paid membership level called a premium level. Uh, you get a hat, you get a sticker, you get a number of discounts from our corporate sponsors and partners, a lot of really nice discounts with a big with a long list of our corporate partners that we work with. You get discounts to our Deer Steward courses, discounts from our merchandise. So there's a suite of benefits there that that come with being a premium member. We've got a life membership level as well. And then, two, you know, we're going to ask you for money. We, we cultivate donors. We're going to come to you sometimes and say, glad you're a member. Can you donate today as well? So that's, that's what a nonprofit does, and that's what it means to be a nonprofit, to pursue yep. our mission and find ways to find that money to fight CWD, to grow Hunter Numbers to improve education about habitat management, teach more people about fire, uh, all these things that that we've talked about here today. We're not ashamed to ask for your support to do it.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So how are we able to join? Hang on, I want to take okay. a second to make a shameless plug. It's, it's actually very informative. Since all of our listeners are mostly from Florida, the Florida Right to Hunt and Fish Amendment is on the ballot in Florida as a legislatively referred constitutional amendment on November 5th of 2024. A yes vote supports establishing a constitutional right to hunt and fish in Florida. So that's your legislative alert. Make sure you're there to vote for it. Absolutely. Yep.
2: And that's the, the kind of advocacy alerts that we send out to our database. So yep. you just gave, gave away your time. tip
4: of the week, by the way. Yeah, that's my tip of the week. Vote.
2: <laughs> we have a full-time policy director named Torin Miller. He's actually an attorney too. Uh, and a deer hunter. So he is on top of legislative things from the, From D.C. to every state capital.
1: That's awesome. So So they're looking out for you with your money. (laughs) How how do we go about joining?
2: Go to DeerAssociation.com, and there's a big join button right at the top of the page.
1: Oh, sweet and simple. There you
2: go. We send out a free e-newsletter every Thursday morning. Uh, It's got new content that we put out on deer and habitat management. It's got events that are coming up near you. Uh, A lot of information in there that we put out every Thursday morning in our free newsletter. It's free to join and become a free basic member, like I said, and get that newsletter, plus the advocacy alerts and other things. So uh, you'll learn, you know, you can sign up for that newsletter. You're you're no money out of pocket. Learn a lot about NDA and what we do every single week. And I guarantee you, you're going to be impressed and say that this is a group of deer hunters that I can get behind.
4: Do you guys organize any banquet dinners or, or like uh, community events and stuff like that? Cause I know as a, as a DU guy, yeah, I push for everybody's money, but I've met some of the best people I could meet being involved in these organizations. It's more than me just giving money to a cause and hoping it ends up well. It, it does a lot for me as far as building community like-minded people. Do you guys do some of those events and banquets and stuff like that?
2: Yes, we do. We have, uh, chapters that we call branches. There's a number of them in Florida. We got some in Georgia. We got some in, a, in a most whitetail states. Uh, so, in fact, we just hired a new regional director. The guy's name is Matt Wilkins. Wilkins. He lives in Alabama. So he's the contact guy for anyone who wants to start a grassroots volunteer effort in their community. But we have a number of existing branches out there already. They do fundraising banquets. They do educational events. They have field days. You know, they'll have skinning poles. They'll have you know jawbone collection day i mean all kind of educational events that our branches do and again at deerassociation.com you can go to the events link and see those are upcoming you can go to the map and see what branches are active in your state get connected with one near you or find out how to start
4: one near you heck yeah
1: Say, it doesn't seem like it'd be a bad idea to start one near us i don't know that i know of one near us or i just haven't done the research to find it
4: probably that probably that
1: Absolutely. Well, man, Lindsay, it has been an absolute blast and extremely informative podcast.
2: Y'all have had some great questions. I appreciate the conversation. I appreciate y'all being, you know, interested in CWD and how it's going to affect Florida, giving me the chance to share some fact-based, science-based information with your audience. And uh, I can't thank you enough for that. But it's been great getting to know y'all. And it's good to know some some Florida boys next door in Georgia. If y'all are up in South Georgia, let me know. Uh Absolutely. we'll run up somewhere soon. Yeah,
1: we'll we'll definitely keep in touch. Uh so normally we ended out with some closing thoughts. So what do you what you guys got for who wants well, to go first? He's for got to give us a, his tip. He's it's a that's a closing thought. A closing thought. A tip, tip of, of the, the week.
3: week. It doesn't even have to be about CW. Whatever your closing thought.
4: A word of wisdom. Just anything. Fun fact.
2: Word of wisdom, fun fact. Oh, boy, let me think here. Um, Did you know that about 25% of all twin fawns are not twins? They have two different buck fathers.
4: Huh.
1: I did not know that.
2: That That is the truth. That is the truth.
4: So the roommate.
2: About one in four sets of whitetail twin fawns are not actually twins. Two different bucks bred that doe. Both were successful. And in fact, um, Auburn University documented the first ever case of triplets that were three different bucks.
4: Well, she was just a saucy harlot.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I was holding any kind of comment.
1: (laughs)
3: That was a very well-behaved comment. I figured I better not say nothing.
4: (laughs) (laughs) We all need more does like that in the herd, I guess. (laughs)
2: There
3: you go. There's your uh, there's your fact of the day. Oh, I'm, I'm lost. I couldn't yeah. ever top that if I tried.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Not I, that I, I would try. <laughs> I think now's a good time to say go outside and touch grass, everyone. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah. I'm going to say, man, uh, you know, one thing that I've never thought of uh, growing up, to me it was kind of like food plot, food plot, supplemental. Um, I'm going to start focusing more on, on trying to manage the woods that we have uh manage our woods better than than trying to you know manage just our food plots and feed
4: man i you know i took the prescribed burners course i think it's like 200 bucks i took it at uh springs uh state park uh it took me like three days you got to do some checkout burns and stuff like that so you have to have something to burn i took the course and i didn't have any land to burn so my expired but i gained a lot of good knowledge for it and you know i've been on burns that i wasn't in charge of on the ranches that i worked on and stuff just babysitting fires here and there but uh yeah, man, it's totally doable.
1: I will say, too, don't just go out and set your uh, property on fire. Because yeah, you, no, yeah, no, no, don't you, do that. You have to have permits and stuff for that. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> I, I've done yeah, many of prescribed burn burns, but none of them <laughs> <have> permitted
2: it. <laughs> There's yeah, that, a lot of good educational information out there. Your state forestry agency uh, is going to have that here in Georgia's Georgia Forestry Commission. I don't know what the, the, the equivalent is in Florida, but reach out to them. They've got training, they've got, you know, classes they'll give you. You don't have to take those to get a burn permit, but it helps, you know, if, you, if you've never burned, have somebody with you who's done it before to help you, you know, learn the first time. Um, and many, like the Georgia Forestry Commission will actually, if they can schedule it, they'll come out and be with you, uh, have somebody on site to help you do it. And once everything's under control, the thing to remember about it is you're not, it's not a raging wildfire. Most prescribed fire you're trying to burn into the, the wind not with the wind mm-hmm. and so it's a slow creeping backfire it's just you know slow cool fire truthfully most days i've been burning are pretty boring you're standing around watching fire creep through the woods waiting for it to get done it's not scary it's not dangerous you know most of the time if you've got your fire breaks and you're watching your weather conditions so uh, learn how to do it the resources are out there all right
1: absolutely you got anything dad
3: I, I'm lost at the three different dose, three different fonts. Just... Does
2: that mean I win the uh, fact that the, the – uh, if, if there I was an you award, did. You, you definitely you did. take it.
1: <laughs> Oh, man. Well, it's been great, Lindsey, and I genuinely appreciate it. It's been good talking to you. Yes, sir.
2: Jordan, Bill, Vince, thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been good get to know you all. And yes, tell sir. Will it gets better soon.
1: Yeah, we, we hope he does, too. <laughs> right.
2: Have a good rest
1: of you. your evening. Have a good rest of the evening, Lindsay. Y'all, too. We good? Yes, yeah. sir. Oh, yeah.
2: All right. I'll talk to y'all later.
1: Yes, sir. Have you a good one.